Welcome back to another episode of Creedal. Uh, as I mentioned on the previous couple of podcasts, uh, I'm now in Chicago, and I can get back on a monthly schedule with my friend Larry Chap. Larry, welcome back to Creedal. Hey, it's always great to talk to you, Zach. Great podcast you got going, so I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I've uh, I've really enjoyed watching your your star rise. It seems like you're on a new <laughs> podcast every week now, but I'm really happy that that we can keep our monthly arrangement and I can continue to learn from you, Larry. Yeah, well, thank you very much, and uh, I learn from you too. So that's one of the reasons, like I, I like doing these podcasts, is I, I learn as well. Well, great. Uh, I'm glad to have you, uh, and we've got a lot of stuff to talk about, Larry. Like I said, I'm in Chicago now. Moved from Colorado uh, to Chicago, and the ecclesiastical situation, if we'll if we'll call it that, is a little bit different in Chicago, where I live now, in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Um, I don't think I've told you this yet, Larry, but we are attending a Byzantine Catholic church here, which is... Oh, really I did not cool. know that. Well, congratulations. Yeah. That's a, a beautiful, beautiful liturgy. It is absolutely amazing. You know, we'd never been to a divine liturgy until we moved here. I'd heard about this parish. It's called yeah. Annunciation of the Mother of God in Homer Glen, Illinois. About a, about a 30-minute drive from us, but good things are worth driving for. Uh, and we went for the first time because I'd heard divine liturgies are beautiful, and I just thought, hey, this is a good time. We're in this really, this area with a very strong... Eastern Parish. Let's go check it out. And, and you loved we it. fell in love. It's beautiful. Are you, you're not by birth a Byzantine Catholic, are you? Not at all, no. Yeah, so, so and, and I'm, yeah, go ahead. So you're like me. I'm a cradle Latin Rite Catholic, and I attend an Anglican ordinariate parish because yep. I think the liturgy is beautiful. And the, the other thing is that the, I'm sure it's true with your Byzantine church as well. It's a smaller community, and, and it's a more intentional community. I guess that's the buzzword these days, intentional community. Yes, that is definitely the buzzword. And but you're, you're, you're so right, yeah. I mean, Yeah, we, and that's we, what we love about even if Even if the Pope came out tomorrow and banned the ordinariate liturgy, uh, I would still attend this parish because of the community that is here. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, and I think uh, we can talk about that a little bit, uh, you know, whether or not this sort of the traditionis path spells trouble for the other rites in the church. I think probably yeah. not, almost certainly not, I would say. Um, but no, you're, so. you're absolutely right. And, and I love how intentional this community is. Uh, you know, they, had this, they have this Christmas event every year called Christmas on the Prairie, and they do it on the weekend closest to St. Nick's Day, December 6th. And we went this year, and it was just so much fun. Our kids had an absolute blast. They do, you know, crafts and things for the kids, prairie-style crafts, and then St. Nick is there, and they have a horse-drawn carriage, and the kids get to go on a carriage ride with St. Nick. That's fantastic. The church, and there were, See, there were singers from the... It was amazing. There were singers from the Chesterton Academy, which is a network of classical high schools. There's I know. In, I, I've in, heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. So this is a nice segue into our topic today, which is Traditiones Custodes, because I actually think... Based on my, I mean, you might be like me, where you have a lot of friends who are traditionalists and who attend mm -hmm. the TLMS. Yeah. Uh, and I would say, yeah, the, the liturgy is a draw, just like the Byzantine liturgy is a draw for you and the ordinary liturgy is a draw for me. Uh, I, I would venture, though, that one of the main reasons why people like the TLM parishes is precisely the community, mm -hmm. uh, that they get to raise their children in, in a smaller and more intentional Catholic community where they're going to get the kind of parish support for raising their children from their peers and so forth that they don't normally get in a large suburban, say, Novus Ordo parish. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And you, you touched on this on your blog post about the most recent uh, answer from the Vatican to the dubia on Traditionus Custodis. And I recommend that blog post to uh, my listeners. I'll link it in the show notes. <clears throat> yes. And I think, what's the title of it? I think it's, it was never about the liturgy. Yeah, Pope yeah, Francis it was, versus the traditionalist. Po, yeah, Francis the versus the traditionalist. It was never really about the liturgy. And yeah. that's a bit of an overstatement. Obviously, liturgy is involved. But the point I'm trying to make is that liturgy in the traditional Latin Mass, I think, is simply a cipher for a deeper, a deeper issue, a deeper conversation that Pope Francis is wanting to force in his it direction. Becomes, it becomes a proxy war, right? And it is a the, proxy the, war the for Vatican II. Yeah. Uh, how so do you, we? Yeah. How do we implement Vatican II? Yeah, and so you. Um, well, just just to follow up on your previous point about the intentional communities, I think you're right. Many, most traditional Latin Mass communities in the U.S. Are, are, they don't exist for the sole purpose of resisting the Pope. In fact, most of them don't exist no. for that purpose at all. Of no. course, you know, SSPX is a different thing, and I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about TLM communities that are in full communion with the See of Peter, um, not sort of an irregular communion like SSPX or impaired communion. 
Um, for the well, most part, they exist and people go to them because they want to go worship God with like-minded families. They want their children whom they homeschool or yeah. send to a private school or whatever. They want them to be around other children like that. They want them to not be exposed to the vicious ideas of and ideologies of modern secularism, et cetera. No, and that's absolutely. what it's about, you know, rather than the liturgy. So even in those, in their cases, it's not, it's not about the liturgy in the sense that the liturgy is the central defining element. I think the defining element is the community that takes shape around the liturgy and maybe it takes shape because of liturgy. Um, yeah, yeah, it does. But that's a I different mean, thing. The liturgy has a role to play, absolutely. But even a an extremely reverent and beautiful Novus Ordo liturgy done very well uh, can can be that rallying point for. And I've and we've seen it, right? You've seen it. I've seen it. Um, the, the the one of my criticisms of the traditionalist movement is that in order to, in a sense, justify. Um, the continued existence of the traditional Latin Mass, some of their internet provocateurs go overboard and are mm-hmm. constantly trashing the Novus Ordo and these yep. broad generalizations about how, you know, it's it's just a wasteland out there in Novus Ordo land. And that's not true. There are a lot of very vibrant Novus Ordo parishes out there. But you're right, it is linked to liturgy because the, the liturgy has to be done well mm-hmm. in, in order for that to happen. And I want to go back to your point too about how the traditionalists are, you know, they're not SSPX. They're not Lefeverites. They are right. in communion with the See of Peter. Not only that, but many of these traditional Latin Mass parishes are run by priests of the Fraternity of St. Peter, which are, by canonical right, by canonical formation, sort of allowed, not you know, allowed, but sort of this it's is kind their, of their charism. It's their charism as recognized by the church in canon yeah. law to do the traditional Latin Mass. So one of the questions that a lot of canonists have had about uh, traditionis custodes is what then what then is to become i mean doesn't the doesn't pope francis now in a sense have to delegitimate the fssp uh priests and and priests of other canonical right for the traditional latin mass um in other words does he have the right and we'll get into what cardinal supic in your town just did does he have the right to tell priests of the FSSP who run FSSP parishes who exist by canonical right from a previous papacy to say, to say well, you can't say that mass anymore. Right. Uh, these people have canonical rights, and obviously a pope can do whatever he wants to do, and that's a problem in my point of view. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, the, these are some of the unanswered questions with regard to traditionis custodes. Um and, and, and because it just seems so scorched earth, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, and, and I think it's it's sad uh, for a number of reasons. The um, your blog post in which you commend to people this Sean Blanchard piece from uh, Notre Dame's Church Life Journal, right, um, is very good and sort of gets at the heart of of this the problem, this sort of autocratic, broad sweeping thing that that crushes rather than supports people who are in those communities. But I, I went and I went and read through the Sean Blanchard piece that you commended, or at least I skimmed it. And um, he, I think, helpfully bins the responses to Traditionis Custodis into four categories. The first is, it's about time, yay, let's celebrate. The Pope is finally crushing the traditional Latin Mass. Right. Uh, he, he puts the National Catholic Reporter in that kind of bucket. Yeah. The second response is, uh, this is unfortunate, but sadly needed, because it is true that the TLM has become you know, a sort of magnet for communities that a are... A church within a church, a remnant church mentality. Yeah, yeah. So that's the second response. And then the third is, I think, um, you know, I think you said mourn and move on. So this is sad, but what can we do? And then the fourth response is the reject and resist, right? Like this is, yeah. uh, he, he cites Cardinal Burke saying, the Pope doesn't actually have this authority. We should keep, you know, I don't know. If, Burke said that. I don't know if he said this, which is, you know, like, let's let's just keep on doing what we've been doing. Right, many of the leading TLM promoters on social media are, are in that last camp let's right. let's let's resist let's reject yeah and exactly resist. and in our previous conversation about traditionis custodius larry i think that's kind of i think we kind of landed on number two some probably somewhere between two and three right the somewhere right. between the this this uh there are parts of this that are sadly necessary um and we should mourn and move on i think that's probably probably where we landed um, yeah and I, I think i'm yeah go ahead i would say that i am I'm all over the map in some ways because I, I have recently come to at least sympathize with position number four. Mm-hmm. I don't okay. in, I don't endorse it. I don't, you know, like occupy churches or priests should go underground and do these masses in people's homes and bishops should resist. Um, I, I, I think in many ways traditiones provoked this. Uh, 
and that's why I'm kind of sympathetic to it. But at the end of the day, it's simply not the Catholic way to go about yeah. doing things. I mean, not that we have to slavishly obey the Pope and all things. Pope can Pope can say and do stupid things, toxic things. Yeah, uh, and sometimes they do need to be resisted. Um, is this one of those cases? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, and that's why I'm more in the like I said, if they if the Pope suppress the Anglican ordinary liturgy tomorrow, I would be in the mourn and move on camp. Yeah, right. Yeah, you said as much in your blog post, remember? Uh, oh, yeah, that's what I said. I, I'd be, I'd be mad, I'd be angry, yeah. you know, I, I would say, well, you know, that stinks, but stuff happens, and yeah. it's, you know, time to move on, and uh, maybe the next Pope will change this. Yeah, I... I uh... I think that is also where I would land if something were to be suppressed. Um, but but also I think suppressing a, yeah, suppressing an entire right is also different categorically from suppressing a, uh, you know, the use of a missile, right? Because the yeah he didn't yeah. suppress all of the worship of the Latin right. He suppressed the traditional Latin mass. Um, but I think we should talk a little bit more about you know maybe how this how this was too blunt of a movement. And then where we go from here. And yes. I think maybe a good example of doing that is to talk about uh, Archbishop Cardinal Stupich here in Chicago, who uh, I think probably, without knowing Cardinal Stupich's heart, I think probably is in the first camp of, yay, it's about time the Pope did this. And, and yeah, I think, that's pretty, that I think finally... that's pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, so he's the first, to my knowledge, he's the first American prelate to issue uh, guidelines for his own geographical. Um, Territory uh, on the on the tradition on traditionis custodis following the dubia that were that were finally answered on December I think it was eighteenth yeah. or seventeenth. Um, I think it's pretty obvious that he had the answers to that ahead of time because uh, he turned out his own guidance on December twenty seventh and published those. And so I think he knew it was coming and had his guidance ready to go. And then yeah, Mer Merry Christmas, it. by the way. That's <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it was. Hey, I mean, enjoy I the octave of Christmas, everyone. Now, here's my new rules suppressing quite right. a few of you. Yeah, it's uh, it's remarkable that he chose to do that. Um, so, yeah, and one of those that he well, one of the communities that is particularly affected by traditionos custodis in Chicago is St. John Cantius. Oh, I was going to bring that up. I'm, I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. Yeah, so St. John Cantius is a parish in the Archdiocese of Chicago that is administered entirely by a religious order called the um, the Canons Regular of St. John, John Cantius. Yeah. A very small religious order. To my knowledge, Chicago is the only place where they are, although they, that might just be the, the sort of mother house. They, they very well may have other locations around the world, but I think it's just St. John Cantius. But their, their charism, you know, much like the, uh, much like the FSSP, uh, is basically upholding the sacred tradition of the church primarily through the Latin Mass. Uh, yeah, and so yeah. this is a wonderful parish to go to in Chicago. They have wonderful music. Their solemn high masses are just absolutely beautiful. I've seen I've one. On, their... I saw their Christmas Mass. It was gorgeous. Wow, I'm sure it was. Yeah, I didn't see that one. But, oh. uh, you know, the first time I witnessed the St. John Cantius Mass was actually when we were in the hospital with the birth of our, our uh, son earlier this year in January. And we were there on a Sunday and couldn't leave for Mass. So... We said, let's try to find a let's try to find a, a live stream. And we'd heard about Saint Cantius and found it online and watched it. It was beautiful, great homily, fantastic music. Oh yeah, beautiful liturgy, etc. And so this church, they do the Novus Ordo, but they primarily do um, the mm -hmm. well. Actually, sure. they, it's probably actually fifty fifty because every every morning I know for sure they do a low mass Novus Ordo and a low mass in Latin, and then I think on Sundays similar schedule. So about fifty fifty Novus Ordo and Latin, but a big part of their charism is Latin because they want to just uphold the, the sacred liturgical beauty of the church. And so they're obviously very affected by this, because how much they can celebrate the Latin Mass will go directly oh. to the heart of, oh, of what yeah. they do. Which, and, and okay, several issues now raised in my mind. First off, how yeah. pass I mean, here is a very successful parish. In, in a day and age, I think I read somewhere where uh, the, the, the Archdiocese of Chicago has suffered a 23% drop in Correct. Catholic attendance at Mass over the past, few years, five years, whatever yeah, it I is. Think, I think it was two years, but I mean, yeah, you're right. Yeah, 23% like, drop. We're not talking about 50 years. This okay. is like a quarter of the Catholics are no longer going to Mass in the past five years in the Archdiocese of Chicago. And Something in the era of, of COVID, where the church has also sort of made it clear in many dioceses that they don't think yeah. the sacraments are important, uh, <laughs> you know, that, uh, 
you know, people have gone to their martyrs' deaths for the sake of, you know, having access to the sacraments, and here we just yeah. roll over and play dead because of a virus. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, sorry for the sort of double meaning there, but uh, uh, but, but where is the pastoral insight here? What is the pastoral motive? What is the pastoral strategy? I thought Pope Francis was the Pope of accompaniment, of go, you know, going to the fringes, going to the margins, reaching out to those who are wounded and hurting. Okay, and and are these not these very traditional Catholics? Are they not on the margins? Of course they are. They're an extreme mm-hmm. minority in the church, and for whatever reason, they've they've decided that this this liturgy and these kinds of intentional communities that are rallying around that liturgy are extremely important to them and their families. And and instead of slapping them down, my opinion with regard to traditiones is is that. It, it's it's a blunt use of raw papal authority and power to smack down a small segment of the Catholic population in mm-hmm. very blunt and brutal ways that smacks of no synodality, no subsidiarity, yep. no respect for the bishops that might want these parishes in their diocese. Uh, for a, so that's the other thing. For a pope that's constantly talking about synodality and decentralizing papal power, in the dubia, we actually have, I think, probably for the first time in the history of the entire Catholic Church, Rome micromanaging what can show up in a parish bulletin where it says you may not even advertise the traditional Latin Mass in your parish bulletins. That's that's insane to me, yeah. No, that is insanely non-synodal. It's insanely centralized Roman authority to start start micromanaging what can go into parish bulletins. And what what it bespeaks, therefore, is, as I said in my blog post, this isn't about the liturgy per se. This is about the perception in Rome from the Pope and his advisors and bishops like Supich, who are his allies. This is their perception that the traditional Latin Mass communities represent a broader movement than just their minority position might imply. And that broader movement is the increasing number of just conservative Catholics who have deep questions about the post-conciliar reforms that have taken place over the past, you know, 50 years, and would like to see some of those reforms modified or even rolled back. And I think, therefore, this is really about, as Sean Blanchard said in his wonderful article, this is about the Pope asserting his vision of the reception of Vatican II. And as I said in my blog post, Pope Francis gives every indication of of uh, subscribing to the pastoral latitudinarianism that I grew up with in, in the 70s in the post-conciliar church. And by latitudinarianism, I don't mean moral laxness or spiritual laxness. I just mean this sort of big tent, here comes everybody, Catholicism, mm-hmm. where there's absolutely no discipline, no, you know, it, oh, the, Father so-and-so is spouting heresy from, from, the, from the pulpit. Oh, well, that's Father so-and-so, you know him. We're beyond a church of anathemas and heresies, so let's get on yeah. with it. And, and so that so you get priests doing all kinds of crazy things at mass. Oh well, you know it's a big church, it's a big tent, and and that's the version I think of 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 the church that Pope Francis has in mind. Look at all of his talk about the church is a field hospital. The church has to go to the margins. The church has to go to the peripheries. That is all an expression of a very deep 1970s mentality. Mm-hmm. of of la- what I call latitudinarianism, where a broad, big net is cast and and the church is no longer a church of sort of uh, rules. Big tent Catholicism. Big tent Catholicism. So you get, you, you get the point. Uh, therefore, I've only seen one other person mention this, but I'm going to mention because I think it's important. If insofar as traditiones is about the liturgy, I don't think really that its main target is the traditional Latin Mass as such, Mm -hmm. even though it appears to be. I think that its broader target are those Catholics such as myself who believe in what has come to be known as the reform of the reform of the Novus Ordo liturgy. So you have a minority of priests that want to do the traditional Latin Mass, but you have a much larger pool of priests and young seminarians, and that's not to be forgotten. I think the Pope has this in mind. Young seminarians who wish to celebrate the Novus Ordo by incorporating elements of the traditional Latin Mass into the Novus mm-hmm. Ordo, like Mass prayed ad orientum, right. the installation of altar rails and communion on the tongue while kneeling, a greater use of Latin in various ways with Gregorian chant, 
Um, and I think this might be even the broader target because look, <coughs> excuse me, buried in Supich's diktat is something I think very significant that has gotten a little bit overlooked. Not only has he put grave restrictions on the traditional Latin mass, he has gone the next step and said that no priest, even in Novus Ordo liturgy, can say mass ad orientum. Every single yeah. priest has to pray versus populum, towards the people. Right. Now, that's a very curious thing, that he would include that in this thing on Traditionis, because Traditionis mm -hmm. did not say anything about this. And yet here you have Supich now, in a sense, adding another stone, adding another layer. And now he's going after even Novus Ordo priests who simply want to incorporate elements of the old mass into, yeah. into the Novus Ordo. So I think the target isn't just Sumorum Pontificum and Benedict allowing the TLM. I think it, the target is Benedict's broader project of the reform of the reform of the liturgy and people like Cardinal Seurat and their advocacy for the reform of the reform of the Novus Ordo. So in many ways, I think what Pope Francis and Supic are saying through Traditionis, through the Dubia, through Supic's diktat, is the form of the liturgy that the church is going to enforce is the form of the liturgy that we have had since about 1972. Yeah. And if you think that's going to change, think again. And, and I think that is, to me, the more troubling implication that they're forestalling and shutting down even conversations about reforming the Novus Ordo. I think you're absolutely correct. I have a few a few thoughts on all of that. So first on the on the Pope Francis point, your I thought your blog post was very good and, and you've been really incisive and just helpful in helping me sort of understand Francis and where you think he's coming from and, and what you think he's thinking. Uh, and and who's to say, but I think you have pretty good evidence to support you. I mean, one, he's he's uh, comes from the from from South America and was you know comes from sort of formation in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and so um, you point out very frequently that his view of the church does not necessarily cohere with with our view of the church, right? What right. we see the the battle lines, the fault lines in America, are probably not the fault lines that Francis sees and when he sees the church and thinks about what he wants to do. And in your recent blog post, you talk about how uh, Francis probably sees the binary in the church as um, not such, not so much as orthodoxy and heterodoxy, no, but I mean, uh, between like legalism and latitudinarianism, as you said. I right? think that's it. Do, I think that's how do, he views it. Yeah. Do we proclaim the rules and just do we insist on the theological orthodoxy and orthopraxis, or do we make known to people the mercy of God? To you and I, that's not, there's no contradiction in that. There's no contradiction in, yeah. in proclaiming truth and mercy. Um, to Francis, perhaps, um, you know, and I'm not saying he thinks there's a contradiction there, but I think he thinks that others see a contradiction in there or that others can't enact well, the one without contradicting the other. Once again, this um, should, oh, go ahead. Well, yeah, so I think that's, that's just a helpful sort of framework for understanding how Francis thinks about this. So then um, that helps us maybe understand why his emphasis uh, is on tamping down a group that he thinks is tending towards legalism and away from the pastoral latitude and narrativism that you're right, talking exactly. about. And this is another indication of, I think, that he does have... I'm not saying he's stuck in the 70s. Uh, I'm saying, though, that he shares that mentality. He shares that yeah. view, uh, freely embraced and freely chosen. And one of the other aspects of 1970s sort of theology and church life uh, was this idea that, okay, I'm not a heretic. I fully affirm all church doctrines, both theological and moral, doctrinal and moral, I support all that. But then there's a subtle move that they make, which is they start to treat all doctrines and moral teachings as ideals, ideals, and that, and that we're all on this sliding scale of, of where we fall in the spiritual life. And so, okay, believing all these doctrines is the ideal and living these mm -hmm. moral commandments is the ideal, but who among us completely fulfills those? So everybody falls short in some way. And so in so they, they like to the, the the shtick was you you pit therefore doctrine and morality as an ideal against real life. This is kind of a Weberian, a Weberian right. move, right? right? That you've got these ideas, but then you've got to make compromises in real life. Mm -hmm. And real life therefore suddenly becomes 
in opposition to the ideal in many circumstances. And so to be pastoral means that you have to recognize that people get stuck in a certain way of life and that they are doing the best they can. Uh, John Paul II in Veritatis Splendor points out there's, there's a moral doctrine called gradualism, Mm-hmm. And and gradualism is the, is a legitimate pastoral notion that, as I just expressed it, we're all on different wavelengths, different, right. and that a good pastor has to judge souls and in the internal form guide people along towards uh, perfection and virtue and holiness. But then John Paul says there's a thing called the gradualism of the law. And the gradualism of the, not the law of gradualism that I've just described, but the gradualism mm-hmm. of the law. And that says, look, if you're doing the best that you can, that's where God wants you to be right now. And so it's actually God's will for you to be where you are. So now all of a sudden it becomes your current situation becomes the law for you. And and you see this in the Pope's Amoris Laetitia in, in chapter 8, where he tries to thread the needle between the two kinds of gradualism that John Paul talks about, the good kind and the bad kind. But there are some very ambiguous statements in Amoris Laetitia 8 that seem to indicate, look, if this is the best you can do, then that's God's will for you right now. Mm-hmm. And that's all part and parcel of that 70s sort of latitudinarianism. Now, with regard to the fact that the Pope is from South America, one of the things I have read is that the Pope grew up very traditional in his Catholicism. Mm-hmm. He was a very traditionalist Catholic. But we need to understand that when the Pope was growing up, Argentina went through some severe First, there were Peronists, but then there was a dictatorship. And and for many, many, many decades, uh, the conservative elements of the Argentinian church, what we would call the traditional elements, were on the side of power and authority in Argentina. And sometimes that power and authority were very repressive and very distorted. Yeah. Uh, and, and the powers that be in the church, the conservative and traditionalists, were therefore set up as it, it, they were suspicious of, of, of the laity and of the common people. And I think Pope Francis, therefore, keeps that in mind. One of the things that you notice, right, and I, this is not a tangent, it is very clear that Pope Francis dislikes intensely conservative American politics and mm-hmm. conservative American Catholics who support conservative American politics. Yep. And I think the reason for that is that that association that he has in his mind from Argentina, that a traditionalist Catholic is one who blesses blesses worldly power um, in order to sad, sidle up to those worldly powers in a kind of Constantinian arrangement. He's not altogether well, wrong. I, I, He's not yeah, altogether I was say, wrong. There's, there's some that. truth to that. I'm, I'm thinking yeah. of like you know Taylor Marshall doing the uh, invocation at Trump rallies and things like that. So well, absolutely. He's not wrong. There's some truth there. Yeah, there is yeah. some truth. Just as there's truth in the fact that there are elements of the traditionalist movement that have become radically anti-Vatican II, radically yeah. anti-Pope Francis, who buy into all kinds of conspiracy, like Taylor Marshall's book Infiltration, that essentially says. The modern church has been infiltrated by Freemasons, and uh, yeah. you know that free, you know, not that Freemasonry isn't a real problem. It is. Uh, even Pope Benedict said so. But to see a Freemason under every rock and around every corner, and to view Vatican II as a Freemason counts, and and then then the Archbishop Vigano is their hero, um, and this all then becomes problematic. So my point is, and your point, Pope Francis is not entirely wrong here in his assessment of the situation with regard to the linkages between conservative Catholicism and, and right-wing politics, the linkages between the traditionalist movement and a certain anti-Vatican II sentiment that, it, that isn't healthy. Mm-hmm. My complaint, though, is that Traditiones Custodes is not the proper pastoral path to dealing with that. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But, um, yeah, but I do believe Pope Francis. I've been accused by many who say, "Oh, chap, you're you're projecting onto Pope Francis your own hangups from your own youth in the 1960s and 70s. You grew up in a post-conciliar church, and you were scarred by that, and you rebelled against it, and you became a conservative Catholic, and all that. And so now you just see 70s style liberals everywhere, including in the Pope. But you know that's not true." And I, I categorically reject that accusation. And, and, yeah. and I would also point out something else. What, what, what my age, age 63, gives me is not 
is not a, a sort of stuck in the 70s mentality. What it gives me is perspective and wisdom. I lived through that era, as did Pope Francis. And this is my mm -hmm. point, okay? Pope Francis is 22 years old, 23 years older than I am. All right? So he lived through this era as well. So if I'm to be accused of being influenced by that era, who's right. to say that Pope Francis hasn't been influenced by that era? You know, yeah. and so the defenders of Francis are constantly saying that I'm stuck in some kind of time warp in my criticism. But my criticism is that Pope Francis is a bit stuck in a time warp. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally fair. Um, I think going back to the soupage point, let's maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, as, as a prime example, I think, of the weaponization of tradition as custodians. And so back to your point about how this was not always, this was not about the liturgy, right? That's the, that's the words of Sean Blanchard, who you quote in, uh, in Notre Dame's right, Church Life right. Journal. He says, Traditionus Custodis was never merely about the liturgy. And he says, uh, uh, this is, I love this. He says, there's, there's not a good English word for what I'm trying to say, but fortunately the Germans have a word for everything. And they have this word called Deutungsschoheit, which Deutungsschoheit. literally translates to English as interpretation sovereignty. And that's what you were getting at with this. It's really about how 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 will we view Vatican II? What type of hermeneutic will we view Vatican II uh, with? Uh, and uh, what will we say about the reform of the reform? Um, and so the interpretation sovereignty is what this is about. And I think Supich's uh, clarification or his own rules that he issued for his archdiocese are a great example of that. Um I was able to find the the letter from Supich um, once, and have not been able to find it since. It's somewhere buried. Every article that I find, you know, quotes it at length, but I can't actually find the link to the to the to the letter. If you have it, Larry, go ahead and send it to me if you don't mind. I but, don't think I do. Um, so when I found it the first time, there's actually a phrase in there where um, Supich says something like, "You know, we have to seize this opportunity for greater ecclesial unity," and it's really it just sounds like a coded uh, a coded message where I think he really does see that see this as an opportunity to be seized, and so he, you know, publishes his statement as soon as he can, two days out, on, on the third yeah. day of Christmas, yeah. no less, and um, and in doing so, he tamps down. You know, he goes beyond the letter of the law in Traditionis Custodis. He does with very little pastoral regard for any people in those communities, and he calls for greater fidelity to the liturgy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All while there are just grievous liturgical abuses happening in his parish at. I would say the majority of the Novus Ordo parishes, and uh, not not his parish, in his diocese, the majority of the Novus Ordo parishes in his diocese. Uh, my friend, <laughs> friend texted me, Kevin Boschman, He's been on the podcast before. He texted me, uh, you know, comment something like, uh, "So, uh, Supich jumped on that pretty quickly when uh, Supich sent out his, his guidelines." And I said, "Yeah, don't even get me started." And then he sent a follow-on and said, "Meanwhile, in Chicago, and it was a link to a, a church called Saint Sabina's Church." Uh, Father Flager, uh, I saw the same YouTube video. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, so uh, they they identify not as Saint Sabina's Church, but as Saint Sabina's Faith Community, <laughs> and they, yeah, it, I mean, it was it was not it was not recognizable as a as a Catholic mass. Whatever that was, it was not recognizable as a Catholic. It mass. was. There was like laser lights flashing laser around lights, and dancers, dancers and uh, all kinds swing of bands. rock music and swing yeah. bands. And uh, he, and, he uh, ad libbed the Eucharistic prayer. I think he wrote his own Eucharistic prayer. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. just insane, insane. And so it is. It is absolutely crazy to me that Supich can, on you know, one side uh, on, with his right hand hit the traditionalist with a hammer and say, not only do you have to follow all the rules of traditionalists, but also you can no longer celebrate ad orientum, even if you're doing the Novus Ordo. You have right. to face the people. Right. Uh, despite the fact that, you know, even the missal assumes that you will not be facing them. Right. That's a whole different discussion. I've but, had many priests tell me that the rubrics of the Novus Ordo clearly seem to imply that you're not facing the people when you say exactly. that. Exactly. I mean, we, we yeah. whatever Supich wants to claim about it, we can, we can definitely say that, uh, the Second Vatican Council does not call for ad populum liturgies. No, nowhere, uh, nowhere. No, calls for absolutely that. Not. Yeah. Um, and so, so, so on one side he does that, and on the other side he just completely ignores these these flagrant abuses that are happening within his own archdiocese, all in the name of some some pretended ecclesial unity. And it's it's absolutely it's absolutely insane to me. And to that me, this is coherent. This is such an important point, Zach, because it is just to me one more indication that what is being said here is that the, the form of Catholicism 
that is to be preferred is is the form of Catholicism that we saw in the immediate aftermath of the liturgical reform in this in the seventies, yeah. because those kinds of liturgical abuses were on steroids in the 70s. Liturgical yeah. experimentation was the norm more than it was the exception. And and bishops did not clamp down on it. It was all part of that latitudinarian view of, okay, well, Father so-and-so wants to ride up the aisle in a motorcycle, so that's what he wants to do. Then, fine, yeah. Bishop Robert Barron uses that as an example, that when he was young, he went to a mass where a priest rode up the aisle in a motorcycle. Uh, and some of those more egregious abuses have happily gone away, I think just out of sheer boredom, because after a while, yeah. innovation becomes ersatz and silly and doesn't yeah. work. Uh, but nevertheless, there are liturgical abuses that abound. And so the fact that Supic won't clamp down on massive liturgical abuses in the Novus Ordo, and in fact, is going against anyone who wants to be very more traditional in that, shows, once again, this is an attempt to cast in stone as an irreformable aspect of the church, the kind of liturgical experimentation that we saw in the 70s as thoroughly legitimate. Yeah. Thoroughly legitimate. And once again, it's, it's this notion of ideals versus real life. So you've got the rubrics, which are an ideal. But then, come on, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So if, <laughs> if Father Skippy Toes wants to make up his own <laughs> Eucharistic prayer and, and yeah. you know, liturgical dancers, you know, then, then fine. It's well, all a joyful noise to the Lord. We'll let Father Skippy Toes do that because that's, yeah. you know, that's of the Holy Spirit. That's of the people. <laughs> crazy. It's insane. It's crazy. I mean, I, I can't even, yeah, it's, it, it sounds, it's, the sad part, Larry, is it sounds like a joke. And yet this is, this is the thinking behind it, right? Yeah, and the thing that strikes me, uh, to get a little more theological, one of the problems in all of this, is, uh, several problems theologically, first off, it treats the liturgy like this human creation, this mm -hmm. utterly plastic reality. It, 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 it harkens back to a sort of kind of view of the Catholic faith and Christianity in general as just sort of one religion among many, and all yeah. religions are essentially human constructions as we grope our way towards the same God. Yeah, and yeah. so liturgy is, all All religions have rituals. These are ours. And mm -hmm. rituals are just made up by humans. And yeah. therefore, there's, there's no sense of the divine origin of the Catholic liturgy when it becomes this utterly plastic and malleable thing. The other thing is is more deeply soteriological, more deeply related to the notion that there's a linkage between liturgy and salvation. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if we ask ourselves the question, what did Christ do on the cross? How did he save us on the cross? One very important theory, right, is sort of embedded in Scripture, is that Christ offers to the Heavenly Father on our behalf, as C.S. Lewis calls, a perfect act of penitence. It's, it's, it's an act of doxological contrition, where Christ offers to the Father perfect worship in his act of sacrifice, that his sacrifice on the cross is an act of worship to the Father. And thus, what, what, is, what is being restored to the human race in, in the cross isn't just the sort of forgiveness of sins, but, our, but restoring our proper vocation as worshipers of the Father in spirit and in truth. So what is going on on the cross is a doxological repentance on our behalf, a doxological mm -hmm. contrition. Now, that's all deeply theological, but what it means is this. Our, the liturgy is our participation in that doxological contrition. So when the liturgy becomes a celebration of the community as such, and is no longer focused on God, and on worshiping God properly, and an offering to the Father our contrition for sins, then, then it is really almost demonic. Yeah. Uh, you can see, I would, and I use that word advisedly, but uh, I, I've seen many Novus Ordo liturgies, which, though valid, breathe a demonic air because they breathe the air of an anthropocentric focus. They breathe the air of secularism and a horizontalism that is not of God, in mm -hmm. my opinion. So anyway, that's, that's my Jeremiah for the day. No, you're absolutely right. I might have told the story to you before, Larry, but here, very close to my home, actually, there's a there's a parish, uh, not in my hometown, but in one of the neighboring towns. 
And we went there for a mass uh, when we were visiting uh, some family here uh, earlier this year before we lived here. And it was a daily mass, and we just wanted to go to a daily mass. And uh, in that mass, uh, there were liturgical innovations happening yeah. uh, that were very disturbing. And then um, in the homily, that was a, it was a, I don't know, 90-second homily max. And the priest got up there and talked about um, how we all need to love one another and just gave some platitudes about that. Not, not connected to the text in any recognizable way. Platitudes about loving one another and loving one's brother. And then the way he ended it, Larry, he said, he said, and if we do that, if we truly love one another, then maybe we can make resurrection happen again. What? Yeah. Yeah. And so, but it gets, it gets to your point because it is completely anthropocentric. We don't yeah. make resurrection happen. Yeah. Yeah. But apparently, apparently in this, in this Gnostics view of things, yeah. uh, if we all love one another, Larry, then we can make resurrection happen again. That's what the... Oh, that's yeah. It, it's about. like Jesus <laughs> coagulates on the plate out of it's, the power of our common love for one another. It's insane. You know, yeah, exactly. It is insane, and it is anthropocentric uh, in the extreme. Now, obviously, there are anthropological elements to the liturgy uh, because yeah. the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the mm -hmm. Sabbath. And Christ's death and resurrection were meant to transform us so that we could mm -hmm. offer proper worship to God and elevate our humanity and all that. But that's radically, that's Christocentrically focused. Yeah. It is to view our humanity in the light of Christ and not the other way around. What you've got is the anthropological tail wagging the Christological dog here mm. in, in so many liturgies. Now, I, I, I want to rush in and say this is not most Novus Ordo parishes. Most Novus Ordo parishes, 95% of them are just fine. They might be banal and boring and bad musics yeah. and horrible cantors and responsorial psalms that only a mule can sing. Uh, you know, uh, but nevertheless, they're, they're not they're not distortions. You know? I think that 95% is probably high for the Archdiocese where I am, Larry. Yeah, you know what? That's a good point. <laughs> These things are regional. I'm in, you yeah. know, northeastern Pennsylvania, which is still pretty pretty conservative area. You know, and it's not the average Novus Ordo parish around me, I would just say, is just kind of banal and dull. Uh, more beige. than it, it's beige Catholicism, as Bishop yeah. Barron would call it, with some notable exceptions here and there. Uh, so, yeah, out here we don't have, but I think you are in t what you're pointing to is something very important that in our large urban centers, whether it's New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, you know, the these kinds of places, San Francisco, uh, in those areas, there are still huge, huge swaths of really, really horrible Novus Ordo liturgies performed in exactly the way that, you know, that you're describing. And it's a problem. And then, of course, you've got, you've got the situation issue too, where bishops allow uh, certain subsets of Catholics to, in a sense, take over whole parishes, and then the liturgy becomes their... their so you, I'm thinking of the gay community, for example. You, you find all these gay-friendly parishes now, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, mm -hmm. New York, Washington, uh, where there's gay pride flags flying everywhere, and you know the pastor from the pulpit encourages everybody to go to the gay pride march and so on. Mm -hmm. These are gay parishes, and bishops just in these large urban areas, yeah. probably just in order to avoid a fight... Mm -hmm. And yep. the negative press that he's going to get and the hate mail and even death threats, he just lets it happen. Yeah. Lets it happen. But to me, is this not a bigger problem than the traditional Latin mass community? Yeah. Yeah, it 100% is. I, um, I think maybe for our next conversation, Larry, we should talk a little bit about, you know, now, now that I'm a student of the Byzantine Rite and learning as much as I can about that, uh, it's, it's really opened my eyes to the importance of liturgy yes. and how, how liturgical life shapes uh shapes the the uh shapes your personal life um it shapes the spiritual life and it catechizes and it forms so maybe we should talk about that i mean i have so many exciting things to share well, that I've yeah lex orandi lex credendi uh yeah you know, exactly. the law of prayer is the law of faith um that can be a little misleading but it's absolutely true the fact is well, liturgy has to inform theology but theology has to inform liturgy too so mm -hmm. it's, it's a kind of dialectic between the two yeah well let's let's table that for our next conversation i think that'd be really interesting um yeah. but before we go today i wanted to share with you um the response from the 
um, Canon's regular St. John Cantius, and maybe for the next for the final ten minutes we have. Sure, so, Larry, let's talk about. That let's one. talk about just let's just talk about a response to you know what's happening. We always come back to this idea of holiness. I want to ask you about your um, your new manifesto of the new traditionalism that we can talk about. Yes, um, and I wanted to share with you the response from the Canon's regular of St. John Cantius. I found this very inspiring. The superior of the Canon's regular is a guy named um, Joshua Caswell. He is one of the youngest superiors general in the world, very young man, but I was struck by his letter. I'll just read some portions to you, to it, to you of it right here. He says, on our community's feast day, December 23rd, I had an audience with his eminence, Cardinal Supich. I took the occasion of our meeting to assure his eminence that the canons regular are committed to preserving unity with him and the Roman pontiff. So right off the bat, he is saying expressly, look, we, we have our way, but we want to desire we, we desire full communion with the pontiff and with our local ordinary and we have no desire to to separate from them whatsoever right and then he says that uh his eminence are outlined the what would be the archdiocesan policy concerning tradition as custodis and he said we like many of you receive this news with no little sadness but we also recognize the challenge before us to live more fully our charism as outlined in our constitutions we have always recognized that the core of our apostolate, our very purpose, is to restore the sacred. We do this through the celebration of our church's liturgical tradition contained in both the Roman Missal promulgated by St. Paul VI, as well as the Missal promulgated by St. John Twenty-Third for those who have ties to it. We will be petitioning his eminence for various permissions. The cardinal has encouraged us to do so. In this moment, we are prayerfully discerning how to be a bridge for unity in the life of the church by faithfully implementing the archdiocesan policy in accord with our spiritual and pastoral patronage, as well as the guidance of the Archbishop of Chicago, and at the same time remain faithful to our mission. So we we want to do these things. We'll ask him for permission to do them, but we will obey him. And then mm-hmm. um, and then he says, and this is beautiful. We invite you to accompany us on this discernment by joining us in a Rosary Novena beginning January twenty fifth, twenty twenty two, and that is the day, by the way, that the Archdiocesan policies take effect. We will pray that the Virgin Mother, who said yes to our Lord, helps us follow the will of her Son and the church he founded. We will observe these nine days, ending on the Feast of her Purification, Candlemas Day. Throughout this novena, our hearts will be fixed on Mary's, whose heart was also pierced, and who will ultimately say to us, as she told the wedding guest at Cana, pointing to her son, do whatever he tells you. Yeah. And that's it. So that's the response of the Canons Regular, which I find absolutely inspiring in its holiness and its obedience to the church. Yeah, and I think um, that's entirely the response that, that we have to have. Um, the, yeah. uh, the the fight and divide and resist crowd, uh, I think they're going to do more harm than good. That's why I, I have sympathies with their desire to be a bit rebellious. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's not it's not the path to go. That is, it, yeah. you, and, and it, primarily, and I love that letter you just wrote because what it shows is how much they love the church, and mm-hmm. how much they actually love the liturgy, and that they don't want to take the traditional Latin Mass and turn it into some kind of symbol of resistance. Right. That, in a sense, is to politicize the liturgy to make it to, to make it something that it's not meant to be which is a rallying point for disobedience to the See of Peter and to the local ordinary, as wrong as they might be, and they are. Okay? That, so I do like, though, I, I think that it was funny that they asked the cardinal to accompany them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is, in a sense, you know, using his own words against him, yep. you know, because he's always talking about accompaniment, just like Pope Francis. Yep. Okay, so accompany us. And so it'd be very interesting to see what, Cardinal Supich does with regard to this parish. He can't grant them an exception without granting an exception to every other parish that wants to do. One would think, yep. You would think, you would think. And you would think that the intent of the legislator of this diktat, Cardinal Supich, is Mm -hmm. in the direction of saying no to this. Otherwise, he wouldn't Mm -hmm. have issued it. Right. So I, uh, I, I I shudder to think what the response is going to be. I doubt there's going to be a whole lot of accompaniment, but that that is that is beautiful. You know, and you go back to many of the saints who were abused by the church. Think of Padre Pio, who was silenced mm-hmm. and not allowed to say public mass for many years and years and years because uh, the Pope had his ear turned by certain enemies of Padre Pio. Uh, and But Pio, he just was obedient. He said, fine. Yeah. It's the will of God for me right now. And eventually he mm-hmm. was vindicated. And of course, I just use him as one example. There's numerous. But anyway, I, I, you did bring up this uh, 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 Sean Domenichik and I and a guy named Mark Barnes from New Polity have issued this thing that we call uh, 
a manifesto for a, a, a new traditionalism. And it's, it's our attempt to thread the needle. It's our attempt to stay squarely within uh, the teachings of the Second Vatican Council and the papacies of John Paul Benedict, to a certain extent even Pope Francis, and to say that all Catholics have to be traditionalist in some sense. That's what it means to be a Catholic. Uh, and so the question is, of late, what kind of traditionalism are we talking about here? Is it a dead traditionalism that just simply wants to freeze frame the Catholic Church in a certain post-Tridentine modality and say, that's it, that's where we have to stay forever? Uh, and then to turn things like the Latin Mass into kind of weaponized tools in, in, that, in the service of that? Or is it going to be a broad traditionalism that, uh, that embraces all that is good in the tradition, uh, even in the, you know, beyond Aquinas into the church fathers, a renewal of scripture, a renewal of moral theology, a renewal of liturgy. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in many ways, it's, it's a sort of manifesto of a kind of John Paul II vision of Catholicism. And since Sean Domenicic and myself are Catholic workers, it's very much in the spirit of Dorothy Day as well, because this was Dorothy Day's view as well. Dorothy was a thoroughly Orthodox Catholic very devout Orthodox Catholic, but she was not a, you know, staunch, cast-in-stone traditionalist of that severe kind. You know, so it, it's her vision, too. Yeah. Um, well, I, I encourage all my friends to read it. Uh, it's it's a very good read. Uh, there are four, let me just summarize the four, Theses. or just read the four main points. Uh, one, the church is not primarily a defensive castle, but above all, a missionary people united in love. Two, the perennial philosophy of St. Thomas is a foundation for the valuable new theologies. Three, the natural law and the preferential option for the poor have been united in Catholic social teaching. And four, the necessary liturgical renewal was begun, betrayed, and left unaccomplished. Yes. So. Yeah. And that last thesis there about the liturgical renewal is probably where our new traditionalism has most in common with the modern traditionalists, as, as mm -hmm. they have come to be called, in that we do express a dissatisfaction with the way the Novus Ordo is often celebrated, as you and I have been talking about at length here today. Right. Uh, one of the one of the amusing things, uh, I mean, it's sad, but it's it's uh, I guess ironic, um, is that you point out that the Constitution that initiated the, the liturgical reforms um, called for uh, organic development, Latin, public vespers. Lenten penance, choirs for sacred music, Gregorian chant, and noble beauty. And that is done by a handful of churches in the United States today. I would say all of those things <laughs> done by a handful. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's crazy, especially the thing so, about, about penitence. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing that we, uh, we hear from various ordinaries, like Cardinal Supich in this example, talking about fulfilling the vision of the Second Vatican Council. Give me a break. That's the vision of the Second Vatican Council. But this is what you know? Sean Blanchard's talking about. When right. they speak of Vatican II, they simply mean one version of how it's been appropriated, which they then retroject yeah. back into the Council uh, and, yeah. and, and claim that theirs and theirs alone is the proper interpretation of that Council. You're right. Nothing irritates me more than to see the Cardinal Supiches of the world constantly invoke Vatican II as the reason for why they're doing what they're doing. The Council Fathers would despise what Supich has just done. Yeah, absolutely. They definitely would. Well, we'll end it there, Larry. Uh, let's let's do another conversation soon. We'll talk about some other other rites, perhaps, the Anglo-Lornaria, the Byzantine rite. Oh, absolutely. Um, I would love to talk yeah, about that. It actually might be fun, too, to get you and Mark and Sean on to do a dedicated discussion on the New Manifesto. So let's talk about that as well. Yeah, uh, Sean and I are doing a, a podcast with a, a group called the Open Door Podcast. And... Uh, Sean's a busy guy, so he's hard to pin down, but it would be nice to get all three of us together. Sounds good. All right, we'll, we'll have a discussion about that, see if we can make it happen. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Larry. To my listeners, if you have a question for me or Larry or some feedback, send me a note, zach at credalpodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you. Mm -hmm.